Uh, tonight is going to be, uh, I'm really looking forward to it, um, hoping it for it to be a, a shorter message. Um, it is possible with me. Most of the times I say it's going to be short, and it really isn't, but I'm hoping that it will be. But um, along with the account of the nativity, or, or the birth of Jesus Christ, I'd like to share with you tonight a message of joy and patience. Yes, patience and joy. You know, normally uh, on an evening like this, the temptation for me is to share a message that's joyful and uh, free of any challenges, but um, life is not without challenges, is it? It's never without challenges. And so the message tonight will be joyful, uh, hopefully, and, uh, but there will be some mingled in it uh, challenges. Uh, over the last two years, uh, as a church body, as a country, we've gone through many difficulties, challenges, setbacks. Uh, there's been a lot of sicknesses, a lot of death, a lot of people losing their jobs, a lot of fear. And, um, you know, our patience and joy have been stretched and or challenged. Can anybody attest to that? Has your joy been challenged you know, I'd like to say that, you know, we're all really mature, so much so that nothing rattles us, but the truth of the matter is things do rattle us from time to time, and I think it's times like that that strengthen us, and uh, the Lord, that's his desire, is to strengthen us, and in fact, joy and patience, patience is often called long-suffering, um, because sometimes it feels like as we wait for things, it feels like we're suffering. But joy and patience are a fruit of the Spirit. And as a result of that, the Lord is working this out in, and in us. He's working it out in and through us. Has anybody felt like that this year, the last couple of years, that the Lord's been working on you and as far as joy and as far as your patience is concerned? Yeah, and so it's, uh, it can be challenging. In fact, you know this scripture, but in Galatians chapter 5, Paul lays out for us the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the manifestation of that love of God in us is joy. That's the first thing it mentions, joy and peace and long-suffering. That's patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against there is no such, there, there is no law against such. And I feel like over the last couple of years, especially, the Lord's been working on that in my life too. And a lot of times I don't know if I'm growing in this area until I'm really challenged in it. Have you ever found that? That you don't, you don't know where you really stand until you're going through something and then you realize where I'm really at as far as, Lord, is my joy, is it superficial? Is my joy just based on circumstances? Is, am I patient because I've never really been tried in my patience? Have things just been going along to my program? Have I been just uh, feeling very comfortable and therefore, you know, never really haven't been challenged like we have been? But I think we all have been challenged in these areas. And we're going to see tonight in the biblical narrative of the Nativity... That patience and joy is going to be worked out in at least two people and in two groups of people. We're going to see the shepherds out in the fields in Bethlehem. We're going to see Simeon and Anna and the wise men from the east at different times expressing patience, 
showing patience and certainly joy, certainly joy. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the eight, verses 18 through 25. And what we're doing tonight is something, we're going to be going through the nativity chronologically. We did this a couple years ago, but it's going to be a little more condensed now. We're going to speak specifically of the birth of Jesus, and then these individuals that we will see patience and and joy being worked out in their life. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone can come bring you a Bible. Anybody need one? Yes, good. There's a couple right here, one right down here in the front here, two actually. Yeah. Yep, right here, and these two ladies in the front here. Yes, Matthew chapter 1. It speaks of Jesus' birth, and notice what it says. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We know that they were, they were together, and, and they were, in a sense, the contract was binding, um, on, and they had a year of, of betrothal. But during that year of betrothal, they were not to be with each other intimately. And so they, they were married in all sense of the terms, but they haven't consummated the marriage, and they weren't to, they weren't to do that until their, their wedding day. And so you can, you can understand how Joseph was very upset and very startled at the fact that his wife is now with child. So that then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, because he had every reason to, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And I think that was a big sigh for Joseph. Wouldn't you say? And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, notice the, 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 the article, the definite article, the virgin, not just any virgin in history. No, there was a specific woman, a specific young lady, probably 14 or 15 years old, very young. God had chosen her to bring the Messiah into the world who existed outside of time, had been for eternity, and now would be made incarnate through a human being. And Jesus Christ becoming incarnate, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, as it says in John 1.14. But here, uh, uh, Matthew, he quotes uh, Isaiah 7 verse 14 written about a thousand years before Jesus would be born. Behold, the, the virgin shall conceive, be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took, him to, took to him his wife. And notice, this is very important to underline this if you haven't already, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. 
And he called his name Jesus, which is a contraction. Jehovah, Shua, God's salvation. Jehovah, God, Shua, salvation. God's salvation. God's salvation was there in this little bundle of joy that Mary had given birth to. God's salvation. This was the means by which God would save mankind by mankind believing in this son who would be born, who was prophesied hundreds and even thousands of years prior that he would finally come on the scene and that we have to believe in him. And then 33 years later when he would give his life on the cross and bear his own blood, his own precious blood for each of us, for you and I, he did that for us. And if we believe in him, and, and you know what? It wasn't just the fact that he died, because if all he did was die on the cross and that was it, we would still be hopelessly in our sins and destined for hell. But the Bible says, as was foretold, that he would rise again. And he did on the third day. Jesus rose, defeating death and hell, defeating it, paying the penalty that you and I deserve because of our sin. I was born with a sin nature, and so were you. We were born with a sin nature, and that's why Jesus would say to Nicodemus, a very religious man, Nicodemus, you must, you must be born again. Not that it was just a good idea, but no, Nicodemus, you've got all the outside, all the trappings, you've got everything going for you, but you're missing this one thing. You are missing the very Spirit of God indwelling you. And Nicodemus gave his heart to Christ. And he was saved. And that's the Lord's desire for each of us here tonight. And for those who may be watching online is that we would give our hearts to Christ. That we might be born again. And we have the assurance then of what? We have the assurance of salvation. I will never see hell. And it's not because of anything that I've done in and of myself. If you've given your heart to Christ, you will never see hell. You want to know why? Is it because I say it? No, my words mean nothing. But the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we have to make that decision tonight. As we celebrate the birth of this baby. Jesus came as a baby initially to save the souls and, and to atone for the sin of mankind and for all those who believe in him would be saved. But there's coming a time when Jesus comes back in his second coming and he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there'll be no saving at that moment. He will be coming back in judgment to an earth that has rejected him. And that's what we have spent last year talking about in the book of Revelation. And so it it's important that each of us examine our own hearts tonight, that we give our hearts to Jesus because he loves you. He loves you. And I know you've seen this before, but he loves you this much as he spread his hands out on the cross. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And don't think to yourself, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the evil things that I've done. You don't know about what happened back in the 1975 it doesn't matter what happened back in 1975. It doesn't matter what happened back last week. The invitation for God of God is to hand, reach out his hand for you. But you have to make that decision. And I pray that you do this very night. It would be the greatest Christmas you will ever have. If you haven't given your heart to Christ, to know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll never know until you receive him. And it's so simple. 
You don't need a priest. You don't need anybody. You can go on your knees and you can just say, God, forgive me. I am a sinner and I have sinned against you. Lord, I pray that you would come into my life and take charge. Remove this old rebel. Remove that old nature of mine or suppress that old nature. And Lord, by your spirit, come upon me and make me new again. All things from the past are gone and now all things are new in Christ Jesus. Have you experienced that life in Christ tonight? If you haven't, make that decision. Because that's what this is all about. Because celebrating Christmas outside of that very thing would make this time of year pointless. And the world can celebrate with their drinking. They can celebrate with their, their parties and living the life of the flesh. But you can live a life that has purpose and meaning. Maybe perhaps for the first time to know that he loves you. He loves you. (laughs) He loves you. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what it says. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at the time, that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria, and so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, because wherever... uh, Bethlehem, which is very near Jerusalem, it's, it's, on a, it's on a mountain range. And so where Joseph was in the north of Israel, everywhere you go in Israel, you're going up. Near Bethlehem, near Jerusalem, you're going up in elevation. So everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up, notice, from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea. To the city of David, to the city of David, remember that, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, because Joseph was born in Bethlehem of Judah, he had to return to that town to be registered, for, to be taxed. Isn't that nice? Aren't you glad that we just get a bill in the mail? We don't have to go to the, our, our, you know, our alma mater or wherever we were born. But because the, you know, he had to go quite a long distance. In fact, Nazareth, uh, from Nazareth in the north there to Bethlehem was a hard and treacherous road. It was not an easy thing, especially with a woman who was very pregnant. Mary was probably, you ever see those ladies where they're like this and just to walk, they're like, the grimace on their face just gives it away. They're like ready to pop. That was Mary. (laughs) And this journey from Nazareth in the south all the way down to Bethlehem was about 65, somewhere between 65 and 80 miles. And the Bible doesn't tell us how Mary traveled this distance, being very well advanced in her pregnancy. But it it is possible that because Joseph was a carpenter, perhaps he either put her on a donkey or perhaps he had her resting on a small carriage of hay and soft material. And maybe he pulled this little thing like a rickshaw kind of thing. Maybe he pulled it himself or maybe had another relative help him pull it and push it with his very pregnant wife in tow. Can you imagine, ladies, when you were in your ninth month 
just within a few days of your due date and you've got to walk 65 to 80 miles? I am sure that Joseph arranged something. And so it was, verse 6, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And I find this interesting, too, that the Lord saw fit to make sure that Mary wasn't going to give birth before the time. It wasn't going to be one of those ambulance or taxi car deliveries. No. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. He had to be born in Bethlehem because the Bible in Micah uh, 5 verse 2, it says that he had to be born in Bethlehem. So guess what? There was every assurance. I don't know if Mary completely knew this and was cognizant of all these things, but perhaps she knew I have to at least get there, so Lord, help me. (laughs) Help me, Lord. And that's a good prayer to pray. Some of my favorite prayers are one words, help. (laughs) And so, verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them them in the inn. Remember, as we've been going through John chapter 13, this inn, the very word is cataluma. It's it's where they had the, the last supper in the upper room. That's what this is called. It's a guest house, except this guest house was on the outside. It was probably in a cave of some kind, but it was, the inn was full, so they had to go out to this Cataluma, this inn, where the animals were. And they laid him in a manger, and for the kids' sake, and all of ours especially, I have some graphics. Mostly we, you know, when we think of the, the nativity scene, we think of this. But notice where Jesus is laying in that little manger. It's a nice little manger made of wood. Looks very rustic, very elegant, very beautiful, sort of, romantic even. But that's not the, that's not the manger. The manger was this. This is a feeding trough for animals, carved out of limestone. They would just line this thing with straw and lay Jesus in it because there were animals all around And so Jesus, the king of the universe, the king, the one who said, let there be light, the very one who said, who created all things with the word of his mouth, this one who should have been heralded, who should have been worshipped, who who should have, uh, when he came to the earth, there should have been a big fanfare, it should have been a huge deal, it was so small and unbecoming of who he really was. But notice in verse 8, it says, Now there were in some in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And notice they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, great joy, which will be to all people. Notice that. Underline that in your Bible because these are great tidings of great joy for all people. Jesus was not just a Messiah for the Jewish people. Notice that it's for all people. Every race of human being, for every single person that's ever lived. And good tidings of great joy, yes. Joy. I talked about that in the very beginning. You know, the Oxford Dictionary of English has this definition of joy, which I find very incomplete. It says this, the definition of joy, they say, is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. 
That's not a bad place to start, I guess. But biblical joy, I believe, means much more than this. Much more than this. It may include feelings of pleasure and happiness, but it is much broader than that. Biblical joy has within it the capacity to have joy even when the circumstances or the environment doesn't support it. You know, as I was considering joy, I was thinking of this, that it seems to have faith mingled within it, within joy. Why do I have joy? I have joy because I know whom I believe. And I know who loves me. I know who saved me. I know what's coming. I know where I'm going. Again, not because of anything good I've done, but because I have my faith and my trust in him. So in my joy, there is an expectation. There is something about this joy that is actually looking forward. And so within this biblical definition of joy, I believe, is faith mingled with the happiness, knowing that this is not the end. So my joy isn't just pie in the sky and then I die and that's it. No, my faith is firmly grounded in Christ and so I know where I'm going. I know what he's doing. Or at least I know what's happening in the bigger picture. He's given us the bigger picture. We've been looking at that. In Hebrews 11 verse 1 it says this about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not yet seen. Isn't, doesn't joy have something to do with that? When we think of our, our joy, Christian joy, my joy is not just for the here and now. My joy, I'm joyful because I know what's coming. The Lord has told us in his word, hasn't he? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. And guess what? I'm coming back for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's coming back for you? If you're a believer in Christ, he's coming, to, he's coming to get you. And I think it's going to be real soon, folks. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but he's coming. He's coming. The signs are beginning to make themselves more obvious around us every single day. Every single day. But we Christians, we can have great joy because God has told us in advance what he has done and what he is going to do and because God's track record is 100% we can trust him and he will never let us down he will never fail us back in our text now in verse 11 it says notice for there is a there is born to you this day in the city of David notice that in the city of David again a savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign to you the angel tells these lowly shepherds Here's the sign. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And verse 15 said, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Notice, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things. Notice, underline this, the, for they... <laughs> Let me read the sentence again because I just tripped over my own tongue here. 
Then the shepherds returned, glorifying God, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. Underline those heard and seen as it was told them. And why is that a big deal? Because I love, I love the order of that. Because Romans 10 verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. What those shepherds notice, they, they, didn't, they didn't change it around. They didn't say we're, we're, we're so excited about what we saw. No, they said first what we have heard and seen. And the order is important. Because the word that came from those angels was the message. That was more important than this supernatural vision of the angels. See, you and I, would have, that would have been enough for us to see the heavenly host surrounding an angel giving this message. We would all drop on the ground and, and probably pass out. That would be good enough for us. I can't believe what I just saw. You know, and then the channel eight would come and go, what did you see? Well, you know, and then it'd be a big deal. But no, it's what they heard, the message and see, that's what the, about the word of God that you always have to remember. It's what you hear. Don't trust in everything you see. Remember what you've heard in the word of God. And that's what they did. They faithfully replicated what they heard from the angel. Jesus, the savior of the world, will come and save us from our sins. That's what they heard. And here's where he's, where he's at. So, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Notice, I made you... Underline the city of David, or at least be aware of that. So he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So why? Why is that a big deal? You know, it's as if the Holy Spirit, through this account, was pointing us back to the Old Testament scriptures that, we would, that he would prove that this is Christ the Messiah. Do you think that's the reason why? I think it is. That's why, that's why the angels came to the shepherds in a field in Bethlehem of Judah. Why is that a big deal? Yeah, certainly it was where Jesus was born, but it's where David was born too. It's also where Joseph was born. The Holy Spirit, I believe here, was pointing us, getting us to think back. And certainly those at this time, they were very much aware of the Old Testament. And David was a shepherd in Bethlehem about a thousand years prior to this. And by the Lord sharing these details, he's pointing out, confirming those prophecies which were spoken of in the Old Testament. You remember in Genesis 49, verse 10, as Jacob was on his deathbed in Egypt before the children of Israel left, what was the prophecy that Jacob gave to one of his sons named Judah? He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, which is Jesus, the Messiah, until he comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garment in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is so, such a beautiful poetic thing that Jacob spoke God revealing it to him and through him to his son Judah. Basically saying to your son, son, do you know that the Messiah is going to come through you? Yes, in fact, through you is going to come King David. He didn't spell it out right at that point, but it was, it was the line of Judah. That was the line of kings. And David was that king. And one of David's offspring would be Jesus. So even in this field, as the angels are speaking to him, to, as the angels are speaking to these shepherds, they're dropping these hints. You better go back and look. You better go back and look. 
There was proof of what happened. There was a reason for what was happening. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it, we know this as the Davidic covenant. When God gave to David the promise that through his seed, speaking of Solomon, but ultimately through to Jesus Christ, that his kingdom would last forever. In fact, let me read to you in verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says this. And again, this is God speaking to David. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now think of the scene of the shepherds in the field and the angelic realm speaking to him. Think of, just have that in your mind in Bethlehem, in this field where David was probably shepherding his sheep about a thousand years prior to that. The Lord says, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are in all the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. David wanted to make the Lord a house when he came to be king over Jerusalem. And the Lord says, David, I appreciate that, but I don't need a house. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a kingdom that will last forever, David. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And we know that this was Solomon initially, but you'll notice very quickly that God is speaking past Solomon, past his sons, all the way to Jesus Christ. Because notice what it says. I will be his father, or he shall build a house for my name, excuse me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, did Solomon live more than 70 years? No, he died when he was 70 and then the kings after him, the kings of Judah, they all died, they all died, but there's coming a kingdom that will never end. The very kingdom of Jesus Christ, because he ever lives. He died on the cross, and now he lives forevermore. Can I get a hallelujah? Yes, it is. It's a wonderful thing. Praise the Lord for that, right? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. Obviously, that's not speaking of Jesus. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And notice verse 16. This is so critical. And your house... And your kingdom, David, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. He repeats it twice as if to emphasize the fact it's going to last forever. So now we're not speaking of Solomon any longer. We're not speaking of Rehoboam. We're not speaking of any of the kings of Judah. Now we're speaking to the only one. In fact, in Micah 5 verse 2, what does it tell us? The Old Testament prophet says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting no other human king can make claim to that, but it was Jesus Christ. 
Now in Luke 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, it says, And when eight days... When eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. The name... Excuse me. <laughs> the name... Uh, given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And now notice in verse 25 here, it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit, notice, was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here you have an old man who's been waiting a long time. The Lord gave him this promise that he would not die until he saw Jesus, the Messiah, So this is great patience at work. He was willing to wait. He had no, really, no other choice but to wait. Have you ever had to wait? We've all had to wait for things. But you know, is there something in your life where you said, Lord, has the Lord given you a promise that something's going to happen before you pass from the scene? I haven't, but Simeon did. And Simeon's, Simeon is like, you know what? I'm going to wait, Lord. And I don't care if I'm an old, toothless man. I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait, and you're going to keep me alive because you told me so. Simeon, by faith, waited for that promise, and now he was an old man. This painting by Ron um, Dicciani, I'm probably butchering that name, and it's titled Simeon's Moment, and it really captures this moment when patience and faith finally comes to fruition. When Simeon would grab Jesus and he would hold him in his arms and the tears would start to run from his face. The Lord being faithful to his promise and Simeon just be to being totally blown away that number one, he made it. He made it. He was old enough and he finally held the very salvation of God, the very God and human flesh. Can you imagine that? Don't drop him. Can you imagine that telling your friends? I was so nervous, I dropped God. I wouldn't want to drop God. I don't even want to make God cry, you know. You better hold him, you know. But patience is something that Simeon had, and patience is not normally our strong suit. It's certainly not mine. We want what we want, and we want it now. You know, we order something on Amazon Prime, and it shows up tomorrow or the next day. It's certainly not encouraging us to be patient, is it? We get things when we want them. We get them very quickly. We even have slogans in the fast food industry, have it your way right away. But patience is something that is something that needs, it's like a muscle that we all need to have tried. We all need to flex that muscle in order for us to gain patience. I have to be in a place where patience is being tried. I need to have that, that muscle exercise. You know, your kids are already making guesses at the presents that are under the tree tonight. 
Or maybe tomorrow morning, if you've got them all around the tree right now, they're already looking at them. In fact, they're picking them up and they're seeing which ones are theirs. They're looking at the shape of it. They're shaking it. Is it a bunch of pieces? Is it one large piece? Can you press on the wrapper and see the barcode? What's underneath? And then you press on the, the, the tissue a little bit more and you say, oh. And then you can see in letters in black in the back, you know, the, the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip or whatever it is. That was big when I was young. I used to do that kind of stuff. I hope I don't give your kids any ideas. I used to do all kinds of strange things. I, I won't give those secrets away because I know there's someone here who's going to try it tonight. But sometimes the greatest blessings that I've ever received have been have required the greatest amount of time before they came to fruition. The greatest things in my life have required a great amount of time. And it wasn't because God wasn't ready, it's because I wasn't ready. And through all that time, God was preparing Simeon. And maybe you're waiting for something. Maybe uh, your patience is being stretched. And you're, trying, you're wondering, what, Lord, when are you going to do this? You've told me that you were going to do this. When are you going to do this thing? You made a promise to me, Lord. How long is it going to take? When is it going to be? And you know, these, these are the watershed moments of our lives that we will not soon forget when they finally come to fruition, like with Simeon and, and Jesus. And these are the kinds of things that we share with our kids and our grandkids. And we hold them dear to us because they mean so much to us because it took us. It took us a long time. And then finally when it came to fruition, it was sort of like fresh water on a very hot day. And it just refreshed you. And so it says back in our text here that so he, Simeon, notice, came by the Spirit. How did he know that day that he would be going into the temple to, to have the promise come to fruition? He didn't, but he was led by the Spirit. How does God do that? I don't know how he does that, but he was there. And God led him there for that. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And notice, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed him and said to his mother, Mary, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yes, a sword shall pierce, pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. As Mary would look at her son on the day that he was crucified, I believe that sword was in her heart. The most painful thing. And yet Jesus was born to die. There's a song we sing above all, and it says, You live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and you thought of me above all. He was born to die. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow from about, of about 84 years. So here's another a really aged woman and who did not depart from the temple, but she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. That says something about her character, doesn't it? And God is, as God is making a promise and bringing patience and faith, 
to fruition in his life, he says, Anna, I got something to show you too. And she's there at the right moment. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Israel. Finally, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. When you read Matthew chapter 2, a lot of the times you may think that Jesus was still a baby. But he was an infant by this time, probably around two years old. And it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it was written by the prophet, and, and this is what we just read in Micah 5 two. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod. <laughs> Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them when that star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you've found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Do you believe him? No. That I may come and worship him also? No. Herod had a different plan. He would have killed him. He would have killed him. And when they heard that, when they heard the king, they departed these wise men. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And notice, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. In spite of this threat now, I mean, here's a king telling them what to do, and now they're going to do the exact opposite. And it's, it's eclipsed by this star that they see, and great joy, exceedingly great joy came upon them, eclipsing their circumstances and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And they had opened gifts of treasures, and they presented to him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Do you realize how far these men went? They traveled hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles to see this sight. They were magicians. They, they were astrologers. These men knew the stars. They saw things that just were out of, that were very unique. They knew something was happening, and they wanted to be at the center of it. And they came, and they worshipped him. And they worshipped him, the time that they took, the money that was spent. We're talking weeks and maybe even a few months for them to arrive. And they did it, the patience. And then the great joy that they had as a result I want to encourage you to be patient and joyful in the midst of circumstances that we're all in, the difficulties that we've experienced this last couple of years, and even in our fellowship within the last, I would say the last three weeks have been just unparalleled, just so many people sick, people that we love. A few of them have passed away. On top of everything else that's going on, 
And you know, it's sometimes difficult to have patience and joy and stuff like that when things like that happen. But I want to recall for you something that happened. We're coming, we'll be finishing here in just a few minutes here. In Acts chapter 16, you remember on Paul's missionary journey, him and Silas were in Philippi. And there was a woman who was possessed with a, with a devil. And she came and after Paul and Silas, and, and she said, Behold the men who are telling us the way of God. You know, and, and Paul turned around and rebuked her. And, and they talked with this young girl. And they cast the demon out of her. And she was a diviner. And she was making a lot of money for men who had hired her out for different things, for, for divination. But once the spirit was gone, once the evil spirit was gone from this woman, these men became to be angry and so they threw Paul and Silas into prison. And it tells us in Acts 16, it says, Then the multitude rose together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. And then when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, which means they put them in the deepest, darkest, foulest, smelly place that you could imagine. They put them in the very center, the very bottom, in the inner prison, and they fastened their feet in the stocks, but at midnight, and this is the thing that I want to encourage you with, my friends, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I wonder the songs that they were singing. You know, Amazing Grace wasn't written yet. Come thou fount of every blessing was not written. Those hymns weren't written yet, and they, yet they sang praises to God in their darkest hour. In their darkest hour. And this is a dark hour for us too. And not to eclipse the joy of the evening or, or, or Christmas season by any means, but if you're like me, there have been times where my joy sometimes felt like a flickering lamp. Have you felt that? Because my joy oftentimes was based on circumstances around me. And you know what? I think the Lord is growing us. I think the Lord's teaching us. Because what we're experiencing right now and what we may experience is what many people in the world experience every day. And even worse. And I want to encourage you to never lose the joy. The joy of Christ the joy of knowing that you're forgiven, the joy of knowing that you're saved, the joy of knowing that you're going to heaven, that is worth a smile. That is something that puts a little light in my step, lightness in my step, because I know what's coming. Do you know what's coming? Has he told you as a good shepherd? Has he shown you these things? He's told us these things ahead of time, that we wouldn't be discouraged. And so our joy is being exercised, and our joy is being challenged. And will you, like me, let's rise together from this stuff, all the stuff that's discouraging you. Let's rise up out of it and say, you know what? I'm not going to allow it to throw a wet blanket over me any longer. I'm going to take this thing off, and I'm going to torch it in the flames. Will you do that with me? As much as lies within you, and you better pray about that, because I need to pray about that, because there are times when I feel like I'm on top of the world, and there are other times that I feel I'm in the basement, and I'm inconsistent. Maybe you feel the same way. But we need to get our eyes fixated on Christ again, not on any politician, 
not on anything, no externals, no circumstances. Our, our, our foundation has to be, our joy has to be settled on the one thing, on Jesus Christ, him alone. Let that be enough, because that's all that you've got. That's all that we really have. And that's where I've got to stand. That's where I've got to stay. If I do that, my joy returns. But the moment, remember when Peter, remember when Peter was walking out on the water? And he was walking out on the water, and as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was walking. He was freaking out that it was happening, and so were the other disciples. But as soon as, Je- as, soon as Peter got his eyes off of Jesus and began to look at the, the waves and the things that were coming, in, he began to panic, and as he panicked, as he got his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink, and he says, help me, Lord, and the Lord grabbed his hand, because the Lord was standing on water. I've been on that Galilee a number of times now, and it's a deep place, and Jesus walked on that water, and so did Peter. We need to be like Peter when he first stepped out. And he kept walking and he kept his eyes on Jesus. We need to rise above the tide of all this stuff that's getting you down and it's getting me down. Will you do that? And it's a very simple thing in principle, but in practice, it's going to take some time. We have to pray about that. We have to be reading our Bible every day. We have to be praying. We have to be searching the Lord. We have to be turning away from sin. We have to be turning away from the things that we know are displeasing to him. We have to walk in the spirit. We have to pray and say, God, if there's ever a time in my life that I've been serious, I want to do it now. I want to shed all that stuff, and I want to get my eyes and my life back in order again. Would you join me in doing that? Join me in doing that. Three more scriptures, and we're done. In the book of James, the Lord's half-brother, he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It produces patience, these things. They, they produce patience in us. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. The idea is mature and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. And Jesus being our wonderful example. You know, he would never tell us to go do something that he himself wasn't willing or able to do. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, verse 1, we also, since we have surrounded, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And, and this is a word for us tonight as we consider what we've read tonight. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance. Notice the word endurance. It means it's not easy, right? It's, it's, it's a little hard. There's trials, there's troubles, there's struggles, there's pain often. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto who? Who the next president is? No. Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, notice, for the joy. It's the same word that we saw back in the, in the Gospels earlier when they saw and they were joyful. It's the same exact word, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That was patient. He despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him was the, to know 
that the price that he would pay, there would be so many men and women coming to him and that one day he will present us as his bride to his father without spot and without wrinkle because he's washed us in his blood. He'll say, Father, this is the greatest thing I could give to you. My own blood has purchased her and here she is. She's beautiful. And see, that's what he sees you. He sees you as beautiful in Christ. He sees you as beautiful without spot, without blemish, perfect. And that's the way he sees you. Regardless of your wrinkles, regardless of your boils and pimples, <laughs> regardless of all the things, our blemishes, inwardly and outwardly, he doesn't look at any of that. And finally, let's end with this verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. Paul, speaking to the Philippians, he said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and let your gentleness be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Not our anger, not our frustration, not our venting about things that are going on in the world, but let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Do you believe it? The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Notice, with thanksgiving, we just celebrated thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's prayer, isn't it? That's what we ought to be doing as Christians, praying. And I would encourage you to pray with your family tonight and tomorrow morning. Pray with them. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That sound like a good thing? It's the best deal. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. May the joy of Christ fill and flood your homes and your hearts tonight, tomorrow, all throughout this week, every single day, way beyond after Christmas is over, when the tree is all down and the decorations have all come down. May this joy still be like a bright light burning in your heart for not only you to experience, but for the whole world to see. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that you'd encourage them and strengthen them. Bless their gathering tonight, Lord. Keep us safe and keep us healthy, Father. Build a hedge of protection around each of us. Lord, that we would be able to just go through all of this unscathed as possible, Lord. And even if we do get colds and viruses, Lord, it's not the end. Lord, we can trust you. And Lord, um, we're so thankful for all that you've done. And so would you please have your hand upon us? We ask it in your precious name.